Hey everyone, we have received exceptional support for the Diaries Plus. It means so much to us. It's been a tough year for us. We're down on sponsors, but you keep lifting us up and making this show possible. And because of that, we get to keep making more cool shows for you. So today we're releasing a new series on Diaries Plus called Good, Good, Bad. Trips, adventures, and fiascos that define our lives. On New Year's Eve 2023, Mason Gravelly slid a stand-up paddleboard into the tannin-stained waters of Lake Okeechobee and embarked on an adventure he's been dreaming of for years, an unsupported crossing of one of our country's biggest lakes. Between the weather, toxic algae, and alligators, he was told it was preposterous. But Mason's journey was a culmination of years of Florida adventures and a passion for conservation. Here's a little taste of the first good, good, bad episode, Alligator Lake. Wherever you are is an adventurous place to people that aren't from there. And so it's like, I'll be honest, right now at this point in my life, I would never leave within an hour or two of my home if I could. And I'd probably, that's probably going to change at some point. But right now, that's like my reality. And I did not see that coming. Like, I I would have laughed at you if you you said that's the way you're going to think in five years. And so... It, it, all of us have to go through it. Like, oh, adventure is elsewhere or life and fulfillment and what we're looking for is elsewhere. And I think part of maturing and just part of just living this life is one, going through that. And two, <laughs> realizing everything you need is right here. You know, how many times have people told us that, but it, it takes learning it yourself, you know? Subscribe to Plus Now for the full story and access to all new episodes. As always, Thank you for your support. Now, on to the show. Dreamlines. In our world of adventure, we cherish paths cut through improbable terrain. They're big, bold, and unique. Sometimes they're a line across a landscape, up a mountain, or down a river. The people we consider great athletes look for them in the natural world. At nights, they scan Google Earth for that perfect galar and then travel to the end of the earth to ski it. Sometimes they look up from El Cap Meadows towards the sheer face of El Capitan and search for an ideal. They brainstorm around campfires, they come up with ideas, and they try to make them realities. And sometimes it works, like Tommy Caldwell's dogged creation of the Dawnwall or Alex Honnold's free solo of Free Rider. This last year, Hillary Nelson and Jim Morrison skied the ridiculous Dreamline off of Lhotse. Literally, it's been called the Dreamline. And it looks like what a big mountain skier would think up in their imagination if they were doodling in a sketchbook. These lines, they're often difficult and filled with risk, and we respect those who pursue them. We do have a sense of how the athletes arrive on the other side of their vision. It takes talent, dogged work, relentless training, deep commitment, calmness in the face of fear, comfort and uncertainty, years of commitment. Basically, it takes a lot of work. But what if that quote-unquote dream line were a creative endeavor? How would you think about it then? I think it's different. Like in the field of creativity, when we witness something truly creative, we tend to think of it more along the lines of like lightning striking, almost like there's a realized creative vision that speaks to us. And it's like an act of magic. Kurt Cobain bursts into our live in a haze of just discernible lyrics and fuzzed out guitars. The young Beatles melt the minds of a million teenagers on the Ed Sullivan show. The SoundCloud superstars of today, it all seems just fully baked, as if predestined from birth. In reality, most creativity, it's not like that. It's a lot like how the athletes are. It takes time, it takes patience, it takes a healthy tolerance for risk. 
There are adventures we take in the wilds, and then there are the adventures we take in our careers. Our creative endeavors, they can feel just as risky, just as joyful as dropping in on a ski line you've eyed for years or paddling into a class five gorge. Today, we present the story of editor, writer, and photographer Steve Casimiro. For 30 years, he's followed a steady call to challenge himself. And along the way, he's gotten better and better and makes it look easy, but it hasn't always been. How do you get to the point where you can make the thing you've always dreamed of? Let's find out. I'm Fitz Cahal, and you're listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. Standing in the middle of our print shop overseeing the production of our summer issue, AJ13. This building is huge. It's about 75 yards wide by about 100 feet long. And the bulk of it is taken up by three giant printing presses. This is Steve Casimiro. Way in the background, I can hear this music that sounds like an ice cream truck. It's kind of childlike, it's sort of delightful. It's also sort of really annoying. Each of the presses has a different what would you call it? Ringtone? Alarm tone? Then when something needs to be changed, it plays throughout the entire print shop. It's so annoying and it gets under your skin so much. But now, a four-foot stack of magazines prepares to launch one by one into the world. And it's just so nerdy, but I'm just such a romantic about these things. But I just go and I run my finger along the side so that I actually get to touch every single cover that goes out. The magazine is the Adventure Journal, or AJ. It doesn't feel like a typical magazine. It's earthy, textured, the pages turn heavily in your fingers. With soy ink and a satiny cover, it's not like any other magazine you've ever felt. It's just highly, highly pleasurable, sensory kind of experience combined with the smell. It's tangy and it's organic and it's distinctive. My whole office smells like it. Turn over the cover and you'll find big, full-page photos and spreads, long editorials. There are no five steps to better abs or eight outdoor towns you've never heard of but should buy a second home in. Out of the 132-page book, only 16 pages have advertisements, which is kind of insanely low. It's the kind of magazine you never recycle. You'd always pass it on to a friend even if you didn't want to keep it yourself. We keep our older copies in the ski trailer, and the duct tape and beer crew often sits and reads the newest one at lunch. What Steve has created is the absolute highest common denominator in a day and age where the lowest common denominator often seems to rule. We're striving for magic. We work really hard on the mix of stories. So we'll have a traditional adventure narrative. We'll have some kind of report. But there's a lot of wild cards in there. Wild cards meaning quirky stories, like the one about museum dioramas, a look at science behind a glass. Here's Steve reading from the magazine. It's a paradox, something that looks alive yet is dead. I've been doing this a long time and I keep thinking I should stop, but then I discover something new every time. Then there's the one about people who steal wood from the petrified forest. As long as people have been taking rocks from petrified forest, 
they have then gotten superstitious and any bad luck that they've had, they've attributed to the stealing of these rocks. And so for 70 years or so, people have been sending rocks back with these notes that are basically mea culpas asking forgiveness. Please put this back so my husband can get well, wrote distraught wife on April 5th, 1983. I tried to keep him from taking it. Dear Mr. Ranger, I am sorry I took this. I am only five years old and made a bad mistake. Andy. Upon returning home, we first found out that my stepmother had kidney failure. Then our dog died, our central air conditioning went out, and our freezer. I had a really close call on having a bad auto accident. Our truck broke down, needing major repairs. Our cat was killed, and last night, close by our home, a gas well blew out a cap, causing us to be evacuated from our home for a while. So please take these pieces back before we have any more bad luck and accept our deepest apologize. And yeah, she wrote apologize. You just don't know what you're going to get, but you know that it's going to make you think differently about the world and maybe think differently about how we define adventure and how you live adventure in your life. Steve is essentially creating a product unique to Steve. From the outside, it looks like he basically is doing exactly what he wants. No concessions, no handcuffs, no compromise. And in this day and age, that's kind of crazy because there's a lot of concessions that media companies make, especially in magazines where they're willing to allow branded content or advertorial to appear in their magazine. This is what creative independence looks like. And that concept, that idea of sort of creative freedom, it's something that people ask me about all the time. How do you get to a stage where you get to basically do whatever you dream up and make a living doing it? And I think that the answer, it lies in Steve's path. Steve started thinking about adventure early in his life. He grew up in the D.C. suburbs, pretty flat, not a lot of snow. He and his friends built bike jumps and forts in the neighborhood, sneaking through the woods down the street. But more came when I was in my teens, and I started to be drawn to things that I just wanted to do for myself. You know, you're kind of making, figuring out who you are. When he was 15, he hopped on an outdoor trip to the New River in West Virginia. Ten days of whitewater canoeing and backpacking. It was just awesome. I mean, the camaraderie that I had with the other people and that experience of independence and also the feeling like you're just completely clueless or you're over your head or you just have no idea what you're doing. And then I found that sense of accomplishment and of gaining outdoor-specific skills to be really addictive. Like, I just really loved that. Like, oh, I can do this. I can learn how to tie a figure eight. I can learn how to rappel without killing myself. I can get over my fear of this gnarly whitewater, having never had done it, and go do that with people. A few years later, he wanted to try skiing, but didn't have anyone to tag along with. So he volunteered to chaperone for a youth church group ski trip to get in his first days on the slopes. And by any objective measure, it was miserable. I had a pair of Olin Mark III's with spavement plate bindings, and these were these plates that went on the bottom of your boot, and then the binding grabbed them on either side. And if you got any snow in there at all, which of course you did, then the plate didn't hold really well and it would fall off. So the skis were hard to get on. They were constantly falling off. I was skiing in jeans because <laughs> I didn't have anything else. They were at Canaan Valley, a tiny hill in West Virginia. It rained the whole time. Steve didn't take any lessons. He fell constantly. 
but I would get off the chair and I felt like that liquid mercury under my feet. You know, I just felt that sense of flying and I was probably doing six miles an hour. And it was like this cat track that went straight down and a dog leg turned down more cat track back to the beginner lift. And I probably rode that one trail. I, how, how many times can you ride on a slow double in a day? Like however many times you can do it, I did it the entire day. And I would get to the point where I would go, I would zoom straight for that turn and I would make that left-hand turn and I would try to stand on my right ski. And sometimes the ski would fall off and sometimes I'd make the turn. And that combination of speed and G-forces as small as they were, I just went, oh my God, I'm flying. Steve nursed his ski obsession through his late teenage years. That's when he discovered Powder Magazine, a magazine entirely devoted to skiing, and Steve devoured its stories. Powder was a beacon of light for me. Powder showed me a vision of backcountry skiing, which for a kid skiing in Pennsylvania and Virginia, like that was a revelation. It showed me like people taking their skis and getting on buses with chickens in Mexico City and going and climbing volcanoes and skiing down. It showed me what Chamonix was like and this whole European Alpine style. Like I hadn't even conceived that you could do these things. Powder for, was the window to all of that for me. So it, it was a lot more to me than just a magazine. It was like this vision of a life that I hadn't even conceived I could live. So I think it's maybe worth noting for those of you who are younger than I am, I'm getting old, I admit it. Powder Magazine was necessary reading if you were a diehard skier. The writing was gritty, the photos were amazing. Today, we've got Instagram feeds from great photographers and our favorite athletes. We have tons of podcasts. We have so many authentic windows into what's happening in the outdoor culture that it can be easy to forget the impact and the power of magazines. 30 years ago, there wasn't much out there, and the September arrival of Powder Magazine was a big deal if you were a skier. It connected people together, from teenagers to diehards to the weekend warriors. And as a young kid, intrigued by the outdoors and trying to find a positive outlet to direct his energy towards, for Steve, Powder was like a roadmap. In college, Steve got interested in journalism. He started taking photos and got involved in local newspapers and media. A friend hooked him up with a job interview at USA Today. He helped pioneer their online division, copy editing, proofing, headline writing. When he graduated, he moved to Vermont to write for the Burlington Free Press. I saw it as my path to change the world, whatever that meant, to do good in the world. Steve had grown up in the era of Watergate, witnessed journalism bring down Richard Nixon. Truth to power, Steve was into that idea. But Steve didn't even last a year at the newspaper before something unexpected happened. Through a series of events, he got offered a job at Powder Magazine. You know, it was a very, very hard decision for me because, like, okay, I'm, I'm going to go write about skiing. Cool, this is rad. I'll get to ski in amazing places. But there was in my heart, I was like, is what I do going to matter? He felt like he was selling out. He called his journalism mentor from school to tell her about his decision. And she told, she used the word sell out. I'm like, really? Thank you for being so supportive. <laughs> and, and, and my editor, my, my assignment editor at the Freeps was, he was, he was just, he was pissed. He's like, well, we believed in you. We hired you. You wanted this job. You haven't even been here a year. 
and now you're gonna go off and you're just gonna like do what what well steve was going to get to travel the world ski and write about the people and places that define the dirtbag culture of skiing and get paid to do it excelled at powder. Within a few years, he was editor. He started writing the intros, a sort of letter from the editor styled more like a personal essay. It was an opening salvo for what would follow in each month's magazine. For me, they were very personal. Yeah, it's about skiing or it's about climbing or whatever, but it's not. It's about fear or it's about striving or it's about thinking you can and then you can't or thinking you can't and then you can. This is the fabric through which we weave our stories as adventure. And I didn't realize that at first. It took me a long time to realize that. At first I thought I was just writing about skiing. And then because I hungered for things that matter and things that last, I kind of realized, well, wait a minute. <laughs> you know, like I wrote about when my son was born or I wrote about really wanting to have a, like a, a ski partner, but not, never having one. People started writing in, commenting, saying things like, this story really resonated with me. This paragraph, it changed my whole perspective on the outdoors. I changed my life based on this thing that you wrote. And I went, wait, what? <laughs> this, you're writing about night skiing led to you seeing things in a different way and you made this change in your life? Are you, are you kidding me? Like, that, that, like, that's powerful stuff. It's one thing to go, I was so stoked. And to write about it and know that you got to go, you know, have the deepest days you've ever had. Like, that's amazing, like, personally. But then to know, wait a minute, this expression of my work touched people in a really, really tangible way. And so then I went, you know, basically, holy shit. Like, along with that comes this tremendous sense of responsibility, a sense of power, a sense of awe and humility. But then also this incredible sense of motivation. At that point, everything flipped for me. Like my, my sense of responsibility on how I wrote and what I wrote, my sense of understanding of the kind of impact that you could have through air quotes, just skiing or just a skiing magazine. And then I realized like not everything that I write is going to be about Kids, you got to eat your broccoli. Kids, you got to love one another. But that there was that channel there, that there was the ability to do that there. I was like, oh my God, this feels like the, the most incredible gift that I can do the things that I love more than anything else. I can write about the things that I love more than anything else. And that I can share these values and these lessons in my life and have faith that it will mean something to somebody else. Hopefully. That feels like the best thing ever. Powder thrived during Steve's decade tenure as editor. Eventually, the magazine was sold. Steve left and founded Bike Magazine, bringing his aesthetic to the rising sport of mountain biking. He took on a role at National Geographic Adventure. He dialed in his language, the precision of his angles, his narrative arcs. The more experience he got, the more he wanted to do. The sharper his skills became, the bigger risks in his storytelling he was willing to take. 
he relates it to climbing. You start out and you're a noob. And, you know, you check your figure eight 3,000 times, and then you only have to check it 1,500 times, and then you only have to check it three times. And it's a scale, right? You move sort of from nothing to kind of this sense of personal empowerment. For decades, Steve lived and breathed the print cycle. He developed a system, a routine, writing, editing, publishing, day in and day out. Eventually, he got to a point where what had once been the greatest adventure of his life had almost become formulaic. I just feel like it's not as satiating. It doesn't stay with you. Steve had to find a way to keep learning, keep exploring, and keep the adventure alive. Find out what happens after the break. And support comes from Kuat Racks. They just released the Ibex, an overlanding truck bed rack that handles substantial loads both on and off the grid because being off the grid is dope. Constructed from lightweight yet durable aluminum, the black powder coat is made for all the nature you can throw at it. Available in six different frame sizes to accommodate most truck models, the Ibex is engineered for adventure with versatile full and half-height configurations. For more details, visit kuat.com. Kuat, because you will absolutely love this bedrock and all the dope places you go. Okay, a little bit of background. Things at that time were shifting in the media landscape, both in the outdoors media and on a broader level. In the late aughts, the internet was no longer a complete wild west. Advertising budgets were shifting from print to online, Steve had founded the online version of Adventure Journal, which became a gold standard for financially sustainable online publications. Every step of the way, Steve had made good choices. People respected him and liked him in the industry. He worked hard, and after decades, he'd built an incredible standing as an outdoors storyteller. I think we have this perception that the more you do one thing, like the more core you are, the more committed you are, and kind of the more legit you are. So if you're skiing for the cycle or if you're going south for the summer and you just do anything that you can to stay on snow and you get 150 or 200 days a year, like that's something that we celebrate and kind of worship in a way. And that's fine. That's really cool. But at the same time, like when summers would roll around and we'd have to be here at the beach in Southern California, making the magazines, not skiing. And I would work all day thinking about skiing and then I'd go surfing and I'd get away from skiing. Like I felt like that was really, really refreshing. So I think on one hand, being an expert, it does close off things, but then you can kind of like jump track from one pursuit to another pursuit and see where that will take you. Steve felt like it was time to jump tracks in his career. The online thing was working, but it lacked something. He started dreaming up a different kind of magazine. His own kind of magazine. One that would embody the spirit of adventure it published in its stories. Something that set the standard. Starting a print magazine with no newsstand presence, no media conglomerate behind you. It's kind of a bonkers proposition, really. You need an audience to have advertisers. You need advertisers to have a magazine. You need a magazine to have an audience. Steve had to break the chicken and the egg cycle. In this day and age of disposable content, of mindless scrolling, I think a lot of people might immediately start thinking a high-end print magazine. That would probably end poorly. But after a decade of running the website, Steve was ready to hold the Adventure Journal in his hands. We are now accomplished people at certain things, at mountain biking or trail running or whatever. And there's other things that we need to learn about. Like we basically 
have these certain areas of expertise and don't really need to be led by the hand on some things. We'd rather be encouraged to explore these obscure or oblique, maybe interesting, maybe not, things like the bad juju of stealing petrified wood. I want to explore ideas. He headed to the outdoor retailer show to see if anyone would be interested in advertising. I had appointments with people and I was trying to lock up ad pages and I had no idea how it was going to go. And at the end of the first day, we had sold out the first year entirely. And I went back to my Airbnb and I went, oh my God, what did I just do? I just told people we're starting a magazine. Now I have to start a magazine. And then I went, well, well, wait a minute, like, if not you, who? Like, why Why wouldn't you do this? And and that was like, that was a revelation for me. And that, that sort of made me feel a lot more fearless about trying things, about launching products or doing other things or thinking about where we want this to go because why not me? Why not you? Why not just do it and, and see where it happens? What I remember most when I when I first touched the first issue was this weird combination of pride and feeling sick to my stomach that it wasn't as good as I wanted it to be. For the first time in a while, Steve was up against some serious unknowns. The printer spat out copies with varying levels of exposure. The form had glitches. When it came out, it just kind of looked too big, too awkward, and for a second, Steve questioned if he was doing the right thing. But then when we actually got our first, when they they had them bound, they had them glued and bound, there's something actually that's very forgiving once a magazine has been trimmed and bound. And you see the, the imperfections on the edges are gone and the framing is exactly how it's supposed to be. And when it actually all then comes together and you see it together, then it's like, oh my God, this is so cool. This is just so rad. We got to do this. Do you believe that we got to do this? And then, like, I can't, I just, I cannot wait to put it in people's hands. And the thing that continues to blow me away every single time is what feels like a minor miracle that you start with a bunch of blank sheets of paper on one end, and on the other end, you get the guts of a magazine. This summer, Steve and his wife, Joni, who co-creates the magazine with Steve, came out with the 13th issue of Adventure Journal. Steve, he still likes to live with a healthy amount of uncertainty. AJ's still printing untraditional stories, and they're not always sure whether people are going to like them or not. The magazine, by design, has just nine advertisers, and for the most part, Steve doesn't do a whole lot of marketing. They're conscious of the resources they use and do their best to give back, donating a percentage of every magazine purchased to plant a tree. Yeah, I mean, I think that we are swimming against the tide in pretty much every way we can. <laughs> it's just, yeah, like I said, like, it's just, you know, probably not a business model that most people want to bite off. But at the same time, like, I feel like this is the model. This is the most viable model if you want to do print, which is to have very high quality very high quality product 
to be really connected to your customers and to give them something that they can't get anywhere else. I have faith that a life lived adventurously is by nature attractive in that if you are curious about the world and you're willing to work a little physically and you're willing to accept a little bit of risk, that you're going to find amazing things about yourself and about the world and about other people. And so I, I don't know, like at the core of what I'm doing, I think I have faith that that the adventure experience makes us and our lives better. And that's something that I want to be a part of when I see it in other people and I want to share it and just trust that at the end of it all, that the world would be a better place for that. So I'm curious, you know, like looking back now on that decision you made to leave the Burlington Free Press, to move across the country and like go work for for this random magazine powder, um, you, you said you weren't sure if this work was going to matter. And as you reflect on that now, after three decades in adventure journalism, why do you think your work does matter? The world feels really dark right now. And it's not just because of politics. You know, I mean, I think that we're facing incredible challenges and the climate crisis looms above all those above all others but it's not the only thing you know there's plastics there's air quality there's water quality there's water itself as humans who want to feel secure about the world in which we live it's tough you know it's really tough and one of my struggles with adventure journal is like how how much do we cover these things what's appropriate for us to cover and yeah because we could do climate change stories every single day and then you know people just want to jump out a window like that doesn't really help i think that what's really critical is that we don't lose hope and there is lots of room for hope even when things are really dark i often think well geez, you know, like things must have felt a lot darker in 1941 than they do right now. Um, you know, we're facing some really big issues, but there's a lot of really incredible stuff out there. And I, th I think, and I want to get reductionist and be trite and have everything come back to, oh, well, if you live adventurously, you can find solutions to everything. <laughs> like, like, let's not be overly simplistic here. But at the same time, like, the farther we get from nature, the more trouble we get into. I mean, Scottish doctors are writing scripts for depression for people to go hiking. Like, wilderness therapy is a big deal. We just reported on a new study that looked at the amount of potential for reforesting and foresting on the planet and what kind of carbon uptake that would do. And if we could plant, it's a lot, it's, it would be not be simple, it would be expensive, but if we can plant 900 million hectares of trees, they will take up over the next 40 to 100 years, two thirds of the carbon that we put into the atmosphere since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. If we could do that, it would be like taking our atmosphere back 100 years ago. And all we have to do is plant trees. So there's a lot to be hopeful for. And I think that the path to it is can at least one of the paths to it can be through adventure and through that greater sense of like, okay, this is my home outdoors. I feel at home outdoors. I need to take care of it. And it'll take care of me.
if anything has changed for me in the last couple of years, it's that I feel more confidence and imperative to talk about these things because I think that we, the, the trends in our culture and the trends in the outdoor culture have gone away from enduring values. I don't know how long I'm going to do AJ. I don't know how long I want to work. I may be here another 30 years or I may do it another five. I just don't know. But no matter what, I know that like these values that, I'm, that we're talking about, we've been talking about, they're going to be there and they're going to keep you warm no matter what. And I think we need to hear that. And sometimes, you know, frankly, like to be like really, truly honest, Adventure Journal is the magazine I wanted to make for me. And I think it's great that you guys like it, but like it is a really selfish pursuit. Like it's a constant reminder to me, to myself, like there's amazing people in the world. There's amazing things to do. There's amazing values. There's all these things that matter. It feels stormy out there, but here's our port. Like these people doing these incredible things. Here are people touching people. Thanks, Steve, for sharing your story. If you're interested in finding out more about the Adventure Journal, go to adventure-journal.com. You can subscribe there and check out the website. We're really proud of you, Steve. Good work. Support for the diaries comes from you. A lot of you have made donations. It helps us with our reporting. It's incredible. Donations, well, they're probably the best thing. But if you're interested in helping us out, there's a couple other things you could do. First off, just follow us at dirtbag underscore diaries on Instagram to check out more photos. We love that community there. Also, I know all podcasters say this, but please rate us on iTunes. It helps us be more prominent there. Music today from Little Glass Men, Denise Casey, and Sergey Karamazov. The tracks are courtesy of Free Music Archive or the artists themselves. Jacob Bain and Nice Koto composed our theme song. You can find the links to the artists at our website, dirtbagdiaries.com. This episode was produced by Cordelia Zars, Ashley Langholtz, Becca Cahal, and me, Fitzcahal. You've been listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. Thanks for tuning in. Mm-hmm.